Welcome to the show, folks. This is Wrestling Changed My Life. Here we go. Uh, I like to say I'm not very good at losing, which is good. So uh, I, uh, you know, I was competitive. I was driven, and and uh, I wanted to be successful. So I got into training largely because of wrestling and and the demands of the sport, being a physical sport. We can endure anything, and adapt, and pivot, and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast. This is your host, Ryan Warner. My guest today is the great Mike Barwitz. He's a strength and conditioning guru, and he's worked with the Red Wings, the Mets, and formerly the Dolphins. He's now the CEO of Barwitz Performance Centers. And get this, he's trained Olympians in over 40 sports. Pretty incredible. And as you can guess, folks, Mike got his start in wrestling. He's trained a ton of world-class wrestlers. He's one of the most enthusiastic and positive people you'll meet. So I hope you enjoy it. Fan of the week goes to my man, Nathan Lexfold. That's Lexfold N on the gram. He's a dairy farming wrestling coach. Thank you so much for tuning in, Nathan. Greatly appreciate it. And folks, this episode is brought to you by Competitor Supreme. It's the Dan Gable 1990s movie, which you can now stream on WrestlingChangeMyLife.com. Just go to Wrestling Change My Life, click the tile for Competitor Supreme. It's on the homepage. Use the promo code Gable to get a free rental. It's normally two bucks, but if you use the promo code, we'll give you a free rental on the house. And that's it, folks. Let's give it up for the great Mike Barwis. Peace! Sir, you are a world-renowned trainer, but you were just mentioning to me, got started early in the sport. How did you get introduced to wrestling? Uh, my older brother wrestled when I was young. I'm from Pennsylvania. I mean, Pennsylvania's a wrestling state. So yeah. uh, growing up, uh, my older brother wrestled. I was probably about five or six and, and got into wrestling and wrestled, uh, uh, you know, majority of my young life. So uh, love the sport, love the discipline, love the demands, love the intensity, love the pressure. Uh, all of those things for me are really... Uh, they are what I am, and I think wrestling had a big part in building that inside me uh, and allowing me to achieve those uh, those aspects of my character. Were you into uh, performance training and in the like, like you are now back in high school? Were you way into like lifting and things like that? You know, I was. I trained a lot because of wrestling. To be honest, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't like to lose, and, and uh, uh, I like to say I'm not very good at losing, which is good. So uh, I, uh, you know, I was competitive. I was driven, and and. Uh, I wanted to be successful, so I got into training largely because of wrestling and, and the demands of the sport, being a physical sport, uh, knowing that I had to be in better shape than the people I competed uh, against cardiovascularly as well as 
Uh, I've always been really strong for my size, so I was able to dominate people physically, and and that uh, that that uh, was a huge assistance, especially at a young age when guys were less technical. Sure, I mean that's a lot of guys from you know I was from the country myself. A lot of guys got by like that. Like we always said, guys from the city, great technique, but you know the country. If you can you know put on some muscle, you can make up some pretty big strides there. And so, how did you just give us the thirty-second summary from high school to what you're doing now? Because you run a plethora of organizations, and we're going to deep dive different pockets of your career. But just to start, um, let people know what you're doing now and the kind of work you do. You know, so uh, the Barwers Corporations. I was the head. Uh, uh, I was the director of human performance at West Virginia University for seventeen years. Uh, I ran the University of Michigan. Uh, I run. Uh, I work with nine pro sports teams. I run the New York Mets. I run the Detroit Red Wings uh, overall as, as the uh, director of human performance uh, and sports science. Um, uh, I, I've worked in uh, um, just about every professional sport you can imagine. Wrestling's never left my life. Uh, I still train wrestlers now. I still, uh, you know, Logan Massa comes down the off season and, and works out. I've got Logan Storley here right now who's now a fighter. I've got, you know, a ton of guys that will always – always be a part of my life. Wrestling has never left. I trained the wrestling team at West Virginia uh, all those years. And, uh, and I worked with wrestling at, at Michigan as well. When I left Michigan, uh, I decided that I wanted to uh, branch out. I, I, my background's in, in physiology and, and uh, one of my specializations is the neural area. And, and I have you know, worked with, as God's blessing, but I had worked with uh, uh, many uh, people with disabilities have been able to help them. And, and, uh, I didn't, God did, but I was a part of it. And, uh, and I'm thankful for that. And, uh, being, being in an environment where I was always competitive, I knew that I, I wanted to maintain that competitive level of what I did for a career. Um, I went into school thinking I wanted to be a doctor. I, I, I did very well in the academics. Uh, I did not really like the environment. I'm not gonna lie. It was uh, a, a little bit, too stagnant for me. I'm pretty intense. I'm energetic. I'm very positive. I'm very driven. Uh, and, uh, and I love the science part of it, but, but the working environment was a little bit more challenging. So getting to a point where I, I kind of decided what direction I was going to go, this field that I'm in now was relatively young. It was semi non-existent. Uh, most people who did it were, Hey, I played football and now I'm your strength coach. Uh, and I, I was in a time where I could take science, uh, and I was kind of a rarity, uh, and, and, and bring science to training and performance. So I started, uh, started to do so and, and, and work my way through programs at West Virginia and ended up running uh, the entire institution uh, and built the program there uh, and expanded it and, and, and grew it to a level where we were highly competitive in all sports, including yeah. wrestling, and, and had some great success. You know, Greg won three national titles and was an outstanding wrestler and, and dominated everybody wasn't for one you know, little mental breakdown one time. And, and outside of that, he tore everybody apart. You know, I trained his older brother, Virtus. Uh, you know, I, it just just for years, it was fun to be around that program and excel. And when I left uh, uh, West Virginia, I went to Michigan. and uh, Just and, football or all sports at Michigan? Uh, I took on – originally, they wanted me to do all sports, but it was kind of a, a crazy uh, uh, task to take it on that quick. And uh, instead, I helped them with a hiring process for other individuals. And I and I worked with the wrestlers. Uh, I took on football. I took on uh, ice hockey. Uh, I took on a uh, bit uh, softball uh, and, 
you know, took on some soccer and tried to help some other stuff too. So originally I said, we're going to do football and I ended up taking everything on by group one by one because people would ask and I'd help. And I, I just like to help, Uh, you know, God put me here for a reason. And, and uh, my job is to help people achieve, you know, what's inside them, what he put inside them. And, and uh, the more people that came to me, the more I wanted to help. So I did and ended up working with those programs and and we had some great success. And when I left there, uh, I decided that I wanted to combine the neural aspect of what I did uh, and studied in, in physiology uh, with the elite athletes, the general population, just a totally unique environment. And I built the borrowers companies uh, from the ground up. And now there's 37 of them uh, worldwide. We're the only private organization in the world that runs professional sports teams. Uh, we have you know gyms around the country and around the world in the country of Georgia over here. And, um, you do. We do everything you can imagine in, in human performance. In Georgia, the country? Yeah, yeah, Tbilisi, Georgia. We have a wow. center. Wow. That's a wrestling hotbed, man. Yeah, they got some, we got some horses over there. God. So, pro wrestling, uh, a number of people we train over there, a lot of Olympic athletes over there. So, uh, yeah, it's been great. Been great. So, that's kind of it's kind of the journey in a brief way. It's kind of hard to explain it that fast. But... <laughs> that was good, man. I mean, the example to me that highlights how you're different is Brock Mueller. And, uh, you know, I know you, you know that name well, and for the folks who don't, we're going to get into it, but you know, you, so you were at West Virginia strength and conditioning and you're starting to, to work in science into it and you have your own system, your own methodology. And it's pretty much at that point been focused on the top 1% of all athletes. Then you get to Michigan and you meet this guy, Brock, what was that experience like? And you know, what do you take away from that to this day? You know, uh, he changed my life, uh, and, and should say God changed my life by putting him in it. Uh, and I went into medicine because I like helping people. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to make a difference. I wanted to impact people. And I took the science and devised programs that were cutting edge and people weren't doing. And we're still ahead of the uh, of the research and do a lot of the testing and all those aspects that, that ends up getting filtered down into the world of strength conditioning for sport. Um, and we're having tremendous success. In West Virginia, we had to uh, they call it the golden era, the most successful years they've ever had in the history of the program. We were we were dominating in every aspect uh, and really across the board and all of our sports were nationally ranked. And, and uh, we were doing it with one and two star recruits, kids that were grinders and hard workers and blue collar families that just wanted to get in and, and battle. And uh, we were working hard. You know, we had great kids. They worked hard. And for me, uh, I wasn't really fulfilled for me personally, uh, I loved my people. It was the most fun I ever had coaching athletes. I just enjoyed it. It was a blast. Um, but I felt like I wasn't doing all I could do. I felt like there were restrictions and limitations that I had bestowed upon myself uh, that there was more I could do. And, and my wife was coaching with me. She was a strength conditioning coach for nine years as well. And, and uh we had a conversation one time and I I just said, look, she's like, you know, what else do you want? Like how much more do you have to do? And I said, honestly, you know, she's like, you work a hundred hours a week. You're literally there between 90 and a hundred hours a week. Seriously though. That was, that was a real week for you back then. Just going. I mean, I I go in 17 hours a day at least. Uh, and I was seven days a week. So, uh, that was, (laughs) that was pretty much it. So, I mean, that's, that's what we did. 17 hours, seven days a week. When I started the program, didn't have much assistance and, and I wanted to be great, so I so I worked on it, you know. And and from my perspective, uh, 
trying to make sure that I achieved what I set out to do. Uh, I'm a person who, if I feel like I left something on the table, I'm not satisfied, you know, and, and, and that's when everything happened there, I, I, uh, we had tremendous success. We turned the programs around. We were winning largely because of the wonderful people we worked with and, and the drive and, and, uh, and, and their willingness to do what other people wouldn't do to succeed. Right. I mean, you know, people say all the time, like, Hey, you know, I, I want the uncommon things. Well, you can't have uncommon things, you know, unless you're willing to do the uncommon things to achieve them, you know, mm-hmm. don't expect, you can't do common things and expect uncommon results. Life doesn't work that way. Right. So as, as a result, we were able to work harder than everybody else and win. And, and, and that factor was, was, uh, exciting and rewarding, but I felt like there were people who were hurting in other areas that cognitively I was very capable of helping. And, and, and I felt like, you know, why wasn't I doing that? You know, and, and what was it that wasn't making me feel like I, sh- I was all that I was, uh, or all that I needed to be, that I was designed to be. And, um, so I talked with my wife and she said, we well, can't work more hours. You got to figure out what, you know, what else you need to do to make things happen. And she's, she's a, a very religious person and, and, uh, probably was, uh, I wouldn't even say probably is definitely what sounded me and grounded me into a position where, uh, I am today. Um, and she was right. You know, I, I need to figure out how to make that work, but I didn't know what that was. Um, we were 33 and three in football then our wrestling team was, I think number seven in the country. We, we had done very, very well, you know, and, and, uh, we were winning everywhere, you know, sweet 16, elite eight, final fours, basketball, just everybody, you know, nationally competitive in soccer and every sport, you know, and, and, uh, winning rifle wins national championships of West Virginia, like they're going out of style. So that was, that was uh, a yeah. pretty regular. Um, but looking at, at, at that era, uh, era, um, how did Brock come and, into the picture throughout all this? So I had tremendous, tremendous value in what I did, but I was still missing something. And mm-hmm. we played the end of the year that year, we played Pitt. We were, uh, number one in the country. We were about to play for national championship in football, which we should have played Oklahoma. Uh, they get upset in a fluke game. We're playing Pitt, who's awful at that time, by the way. I think they had three wins. Uh, we've got Pat White, leading rusher in the history of college football uh, as a quarterback. We've got Steve Slayton in the backfield, Noel Devine. We're loaded, right? You know, we're a nasty team. We've got kids up for the Heisman. We go out and play a, a terrible pit team and uh, do everything we can to score. And for some reason, we have like 400 yards that are 200 yards. We can't get it in the end zone. Pat White dislocates his thumb, can't play. Steve Slayton sprains his ankle and – Pat McAfee, who's now Barstool Sports, who I coached for years and a good friend, uh, is our kicker. He never misses field goals. People beat him up for this for years. The guy is a four-time pro bowler and the greatest kicker in the history of West Virginia University. And people are still angry with him because he missed a couple field goals in that game that they say cost us the game. I'm pretty sure we made some other friggin' mistakes. I'm pretty sure. So, So we lose the game. And when that happened, it knocks us out of a national championship. West Virginia's never had one in football. Uh, and the state feels it hard, you know, and, and, and everything falls apart and, uh, people are upset. People are crying. People are throwing things on the field. It was ugly. And Rich Rodriguez gets offered the job at the university of Michigan. Uh, initially I had no plan on going, you know, I didn't, I was like, look, I'm, I'm staying here. Was he at West it, Virginia before that? Yes. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. So it is what it is. I'm staying here. John Beeline had gone to Michigan and offered me to come the year before, and we had talked and didn't want to do it then. And 
I didn't really know much about Michigan. I'm not going to lie. It's not that I didn't like them, but didn't know anything about them. Mm -hmm. uh, I turned down 21 jobs in two years. I, I, I was waiting for what was right and what, what I felt like God was calling me to do. And uh, when we turned down Alabama the year before, uh, people don't know that, but yeah, so I've turned down quite, quite a few good jobs. We turned down Alabama the year before, and uh, um, when that happened, there were certain things that were promised to Rich Rodriguez for the coaches and other things, and those things didn't come to fruition when the president was in there uh, after they were promised. And, and I'm a person of, of, of I'm honest. Uh, I have integrity. I expect people around me to do the same and be the same. And uh, that was kind of a push over the hump at the last minute. And, and I decided that I felt like God was calling me to go to Michigan. I didn't want to leave my kids because I love my kids there. They were my family. Uh, but I really felt like God was calling me to move. I prayed a lot. And uh, when I arrived at Michigan, we won. The crazy part is we went and played in the Fiesta Bowl against Oklahoma. And Oklahoma was the team that was number two on one and one on the other. We were two on the other. So, and we beat them like 47-14. Crushed them. So we should have won the national championship. Whoops. Uh, but we just annihilated them, right? And, and uh, that let me know that it was supposed to happen. Mm. You know, this is sometimes that you don't lose to a three-win pit team and crush Oklahoma, the number two team, the way you did and beat everybody the way you did all year unless something's supposed to happen. And uh, it did. And upon arriving at the University of Michigan, the first two people I met, one Brandon Graham, which is a unique story in himself, uh, who's now you know a high-level uh, defensive end for the Philadelphia Eagles, one of the best in the country, uh, and was Elliot Mueller. Um, Elliot Mueller uh, was an Ohio State fan his entire life. He's Brock's older brother. And he grew up in Washington, Ohio, uh, Ohio State, big O on the wall. Uh, no one in his family liked Michigan and, uh, for some reason he felt at the same time, like he was being called to visit Michigan, even though he wanted to go to Ohio state. And, uh, I think his dad had a conversation with him and told him that it wasn't God talking to him because God hates Michigan. But, uh, he, uh, so he, uh, he ended up going visiting, uh, the university of Michigan and, and as an entire, his entire life, he hated Michigan and was an Ohio state fan and committed on the spot. <laughs> he was supposed to do it so he goes to the university of michigan i fly back from this from the fiesta bowl land in west virginia get a plane fly to michigan it's freezing cold i just left arizona i walk off the plane i walk into the gym i'm getting ready to meet with the athletic director and here's this kid and we end up in the same place same time as god would have it just and he's random kind of random and i at the last minute i made my decision at the last minute he made his and uh, he walks in with a sling on. And I said, what's up, buddy? How you doing? You know, I started talking to him. Who are you? You know, he said, hey, I'm Elliot Mueller. I'm an offensive lineman from Washington, Ohio. And I said, what's up with the sling? Just tear your shoulder up. And uh, he kind of got stoic. You know, and you, I'm fresh back from a Fiesta Bowl championship. And you know, I've got, I don't know, i got 27 rings. They're in a closet somewhere. My kids play with them to throw darts. They don't mean anything, right? People do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the journey is what matters. It's not the end destination. It's not the trophy you get. It's what you did along the way that gives that value. And the people you come in contact are with are what make things valuable in life. And uh, so I looked at him and I said, you know, what happened? And he said, uh, Coach, uh, we were coming home from church Christmas Eve and his eyes started to well up. And he said, uh, we stopped at a stop sign, proceeded through the stop sign, 
90-year-old man ran a stop sign going 80 mile an hour, hit my family broadside. My girlfriend died in my arms. My, uh, sorry. No problem. I, uh, uh, my brother's paralyzed and uh, my father died. My mother got out unscathed uh, and I ripped, uh, I tore my arm out of this, I tore my rotator cuff uh, ripping the door off the hinges to get my brother out of the car. So I remember thinking to myself, like, look, all these rings, all of these championships, all of this time, 44 different sports, you know, over 5,000 Olympic professional athletes. What really matters is life, people, and what they do with the time they're given and how they impact others. And I looked at him and said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear it. And I, I was just crushed. I came off a big high. And uh, he said, well, we saw a motivational thing that you did because I motivational speak. And um, my brother's in the hospital and we were watching it. And, you know, a lot of press about you coming here and we're excited. And he's like, would you mind going to see him sometime? And I said, no, like, I'll go right now. You want to go? Let's go. So we did. We grabbed the O-line coach and, and we headed out. And uh, went right to the hospital. I missed a meeting with the athletic director day one, which probably wasn't advisable, but I figured this was pretty important. So we went, uh, went to the hospital and, and uh, Brock was in there. He was broken. He was tattered. Spine was broken. They had already given him less than a 1% chance of ever walking again. Mm. Um, his arm was, you know, contorted and fractured and, uh, he was paralyzed and I looked at him and started talking to him. The thing that amazed me is he was positive. He looked in my eyes and he said, coach, I'm gonna be okay. Thanks for coming to see me. And I was making him laugh and joke. And I said, listen, nobody in here has this answer. It's up to God's will and your work to decide what happens. They cannot look at every cell in your body and determine the functional capacity. They're giving you odds based on what they know with their rehabilitation philosophy of what is paid for by insurance, what has been done in the past, what has uh, contributed to people walking, and the cases that are specifically like yours have a low chance of walking in that environment. Mm -hmm. Change the environment. Change the environment. Do more than what others did and try and make it happen and see if God will will your work to accomplish something. And he smiled. And when I left, I think the physical therapist looked at him and said, that guy's nuts. Uh, you know, he's a physiologist. He's really smart. I know I got you, but you got to get used to being in a chair. You got to get used to being paralyzed. And, and it's not the part of the physical therapist. It's just that's all that usually happens in that circumstance. So for two years, Brock went to rehabilitation and, and couldn't walk. Um, he used to come to practice and we'd roll him around the wheelchair. We'd throw balls at him and catch, you know, we all mess around joke. And, mm -hmm. uh, his mom called me and said, look, I wanted to talk to you. Uh, after two years, they cut his insurance off and they're not going to cover it anymore. And, and, uh, he's a mess. His dad's gone. He doesn't have anyone to talk to and he, he respects you and believes in you. Would you mind talking to him? So I did. And we had a conversation and we had a long talk and my, my assistant at the time, and uh, Parker Whiteman, and I had a, had a long conversation about, hey, look, you know, I'm willing to help the kid, whatever he wants to do. And so I asked him, I said, well, do you want to walk or not? And he looked at me, he got kind of pissed. He looked at me and he said, yeah, I want to walk, coach. I've, I've tried for two years. I can't. And he said, but I don't know what to do now. We don't, I don't really have that option. I said, well, whenever you're ready, you let me know. I'll start training you. 
<laughs> and he said, uh, he looked at me, he said, you're already here from sunup to sundown. When are you going to do it? I said, don't make excuses, son. I'm not making any. You don't make any. And he looked at me, he smiled. I said, I'll meet you whatever time we can be here. It doesn't matter. So we did. We integrated Brock into it. And we started working with Brock. And uh, and uh, in uh, six weeks, we had a Twitch with a new system that I wrote from scratch to engineer the program. And my, my assistant, Parker Whiteman, and I worked with him every day. And, and uh, in six months, he let us out of the tunnel in front of 110,000 people on Kings. Uh, it's the loudest uh, that I know of. It's still recorded in the history of the University of Michigan in the, in the stadium. Uh, if you look it up, Brock Miller Big Ten Network piece uh, is is the piece that won an Emmy. Uh, Big Ten's only Emmy, actually. Uh, they won an Emmy, and then uh, uh, I did a TED Talk on it as well. Uh, Mike Barr was TED Talk, but uh, it, watching him change and every day him struggling and fighting and battling uh, and keeping him in the gym around the team and the mm. team seeing it didn't just change Brock's lives life it changed the lives of his family who were fighting and struggling with him and dealing with his pain that they couldn't solve it changed the lives of the boys that were in the gym and the men that were in the gym trying to grow themselves and watch his fight and realize that their fight was easier and they could do more than they thought and they were inspired by him he was inspired by them and it was the way man is meant to be we look to each other and inspire one another. We draw something out of a human being that you can feel in a presence when somebody has that. Mm -hmm. And when you get that, life changes. God wills things to change. And uh, he ended up leading us out of the tunnel in front of 110,000 people touching the banner. I refused to walk with him. Uh, it was his moment and God's moment and his family's moment. I met him at half, halfway across the field and helped him off. We got to the sideline and uh, the players... I'm kind of a gruff, as you can hear the voice, harder guy. And the players looked at me, and they were all crying. And they said, don't you, you crying? And I said, no, if Brock could walk right, he wouldn't be kicking dirt in my damn eye. And they all started laughing. <laughs> so we, uh, we all joked. But at that moment, I knew life had to change. That it wasn't just about impacting these athletes. I was denying what else was put inside me cognitively, physically, mentally, that I could give to the world. Mm. And uh, while I was training Brock, people didn't know I had taken our defensive coordinator's daughter, had a taxi and a rare uh, bundle of blood vessels wrapped around her brainstem. She was a lacrosse player at Columbia and had become a taxi and couldn't walk either. And she ended up jogging uh, by the time we were done. And she danced at her wedding and she has babies now. And she's, uh, we rehabbed her at the same time because I was watching him working with her on the field and I couldn't stand it. I'm like, give me her. I'll take her too. So I took her. I took Brock. And then there was another buddy of mine whose buddy, Andy, had brain cancer for years and had lost the ability to walk. And we got him walking too. And all three of them that were impossible scenarios ended up walking, running, doing their things again. And, and uh, I realized that God had given me the opportunity to do what I wanted to do a long time. Mm. I didn't deserve it. He just gives you what what you don't deserve. That's great. Yeah. And uh, I ended up in a position where it was time for me to do what I was supposed to do, not just what I wanted to do. And that's so, what uh, you're doing now. You do you do a little bit of, bit of both. You know, pro athletes, a little bit of what we're talking about there. I don't know if you call it rehabilitation or, or what it is, but that's another segment of your work. Yeah. So we wrote uh, we wrote the uh, uh, program for neurological reengineering. Neurological reengineering is us. Got it. 
Uh, we wrote that for neuroclients. People fly from India, Australia, England, all over the world to come to us. We're like top, you know, rehab clinic for neural patients around the world. And people fly in from all countries. We've had now, I mean, hundreds of people walk at this point now. Uh, and I haven't. God has. I got nothing to do with it. I'm just a dummy. Let's be a part of it. So, <laughs> let me ask. So. Let me ask you this, Coach. You are a guy who's extremely optimistic, and I've got that from everything I've read about you, and, and definitely from this interview. How much of it? How much of the taking someone who can't walk to walk is instilling the belief in them that something else is possible versus the the science behind it? I'm sure it's a little bit of both, but how would you weight those two? Like if I think you, it's both, you know, I think yeah. I think it's that. I think it's the environment. You know, I put them in an environment that's it's not sedated. It's not beige uh, walls at a well, rehab center. It's 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 intense. It's inspiring. It's driven. You can get more out of yourself hormonally in that environment than you can in, in a sedentary environment. You know, it's just it doesn't it, that uh, the caring, the love, the support, the fact that you believe in them, therefore they believe in themselves. Uh, and the science is very intricate. Uh, and what I wrote, I mean, everything I wrote in physiology was neurally based. Every program I write is neurally based. Mm -hmm. So I took all of the different facets of how I developed the neurological programs for our athletes. And I reconverted those facets back to the medical side where I had originally studied and said, I'm going to take all the things I've learned from making a person 1% better in one area by doing this with the neural system. And I'm going to combine it to someone who can't move at all. And we put it all together and it was God's design. You know, he, he brought me through it all in a way that everything I did from the time I started wrestling when I was little to the time I went into physiology and medicine to the time I was in athletics, all led me back to the same place with the answers I needed. Mm. So my history and my journey gave me the answers for the problems that I was faced with. And, and now, you know, we, we do PT, we do Cairo, we do performance training. We work with over 5,000 Olympic and pro athletes in 44 sports. We work with everything that walks or talks and some that don't, and sooner or later they will. That's, well, that's it. God, I mean, you think about the randomness of you being at that open practice football field the same time as Brock's brother, and you don't think it's random at all. You know, you think that's, you know, and I, I, I respect that. And I, It's exciting to think that, you know, it's, you never know until the, you know, that the next day until something's going to happen, right? You know, you just keep putting your head down and doing the right things, and eventually, you know, connections will be made like that, like you're saying. Um, I want to go into the science a little bit because I've heard you talk about Wolf's Law, and that was developed during the, uh, I guess, during the Soviet Union, um, and maybe I'm wrong on that, but I'm really fascinated by that. Talk about Wolf's Law a little bit and how that impacts your methodology. You know, the body conforms and adapts to the intensities and directions it's eventually subjected to, right? So that's, that's Wolf's Law. Wolf's Law was originally designed as a law of bone, for bone, right? So if a bone takes an impact it will conform and adapt to that given intensity that was applied to it. And in the direction that that intensity was applied, if it happens on a habitual basis, sometimes acutely as well with a bone, right? So if I continue to smack a bone in small areas, it, it deposits calcium, right? Yeah. If I add a stress to a bone, it thickens and strengthens. Uh, if you think of weight training, what are we doing with a woman with osteoporosis? We give her calcium, right, uh, uh, and, and, and bone matrix nutrition, and then we allow to accommodate stressors on the bone, which causes the bone to thicken and strengthen. Uh, we know that. That's a law of, of, of bone for sure. But what we realized was it wasn't just that. It's a law of medicine. 
everything in the human body conforms and adapts to the intensities and directions it's eventually subjected to. Mm. Life does, you know, and, and, and looking at that and saying, what is it really? Let's take the squat, for instance, right? If I take a bar and I put it on my back, the body will conform and adapt to the intensity. Let's say it's 500 pounds to 500 pounds in a downward direction if I do it on a regular basis. What do you do? You take calcium out of your diet, you thicken the bones in your legs, you thicken the bones in the spine, you strengthen all the structures to allow for them to handle load. Your connective tissue changes and allows for greater stress. Your muscles adapt to overcome those forces. All of those things can form and adapt to those intensities and directions. And so do our cells in our body, mm -hmm. everything we do, right? So devising our programs for me was really simple. I'm going to take the way our body adapts to things and adapt my system around the body, the way the body was designed. Instead of asking a design structure to adapt to me, I already know that it adapts to these things. I know there's an end goal to accommodate my results, mm -hmm. right? I'm going to work from the end goal backwards. So I know where I'm actually going. I don't want to be wearing a blindfold trying to drive my car home. You know, I'm, I'm going to work and pull backwards so I know where I'm going and I know where I need to end up with a cell because everybody says you train sport specific. Not really. You train cellular specific because what you're doing is providing a specific stimulus to a given cell to accommodate and elicit a desired adaptation. Hmm. Therefore, I've got to know where I want to end up to get there. Otherwise, I can't provide the appropriate stimulus. So I started working backwards and saying, how do I design every facet of training from speed, agility, plyometrics, you know, explosive training, impulse training, weightlifting to adhere to the end destination with the systems we desire and supply the accurate stimulus to sell to get the desired result. And, and Wolf's Law is the governing body of how that happens. You know, yeah. and if, if, if you randomly supply stim stimulus, you randomly get results. If there's no given design direction, it's like going into the, to, to, to the wrestling room and saying, today, I'm going to just do 27 different things, flip around, no cues. I'm not going to work on technique. Then I'm going to go wrestle. Right. Life doesn't work that way. You're right. going to get the spot beat out of you because your body isn't going to be functionally able to adapt and accommodate the things necessary for you to achieve. And that's what Wolf's Law is. Well, think about when people go to space. That's the Wolf's Law in reverse. When people go to space, you know, they lose bone density. They get shorter. It's like sure. the fr the freakiest things. And so so what you do differently then is you take this overarching methodology. And I've seen videos of you working with baseball players. You do really niche-specific exercises. And we're talking about the one percenter. So you're looking for just that little bit more. But so you find these exercises that are specific to that sport, not just hey, we're going to do curls because everyone does curls, right? You're doing these very specific movements. Um, if we focus on the wrestling world and knowing that there's a lot of high school and college kids that listen to this, what are, you can take this a couple of ways, a couple misconceptions that you'd like athletes to stop doing now, training-wise, or what are some things they could do that you think they're probably doing just because it's status quo, but they should be doing because you think there's some science behind it. So, you know, either way you want to take that, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. You know, uh, Wrestling's unique, and as you said, you know, when we bring in an athlete, we actually screen them. 
Uh, I wrote the ARS screening for neural clients. We use it for our athletes now, and we use it in all of our pro teams. And uh, it's a screen of every joint, the function, the capacity, the forces. And then I have charts. And then we build out correctives based on imbalances that sports supply, right? So wrestling, we're always hunched over. The head's down. We're in flexion. A lot of those positions, there are a lot of things we have to counteract to stabilize the shoulder, the spine. Then we build out a performance program. So we have the corrective program and the performance program intertwined, right? Mm. Because the body conforms and adapts to intensities, directions, fitness, objectives. So the sport provides those intensities and directions. So there's things we have to counteract in the sport as well as things we have to enhance. Um, I think a lot of times things that I see, especially with a lot of athletes around the world and even some pro teams, things are very balanced. They don't realize that most of what you do is anterior. And that you have to balance the posterior more excessively than you do the anterior so that you don't get anterior excessive, develop, excessive development and end up with risk of injury. Um, I what think it, also what, what, real quick, what does that mean, the anterior and the interior for the layman among us? So anterior is like, for instance, uh, in wrestling, our shoulders are always hunched forward, right? So that means we're protracted. Our shoulders are here. Uh, it means most of our tension's here. Then we're going to go in and we're going to bench. Then we're going to do dumbbell bench. We're going to do a whole bunch more. And we don't really recognize the subscap, all the rhomboids, the retractors, the lat. I actually need to do those more than I do the front side because they're already getting overemphasized in my sport. Got so it. how do I contraindicate that? We in there, we're squatting, 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 single leg pressing, whatever it is. And nobody's doing the glutes and the hamstrings and the ratios necessary. So I like to see at least 20% more load on the posterior aspect for the majority of elite sports than I do on the anterior aspect mm. to counteract and contraindicate what's happening and get my body back to a natural neutral position to generate power. Uh, the other thing is what are we doing for the small postural muscles? What are we doing for our balance and our functional ability to stabilize and react? Um, what are we doing for corrective exercises to accommodate the rotator cuff to be strong in all positions? Because not only will the cuff make us uh, less susceptible to injury, it will also increase our ability to perform with strength and power around that joint. Um, all of those factors become really, really appropriate for each sport. Then knowing your sport and how to design your workout to be specific, um, just going in and be great, being a great weightlifter doesn't mean you're going to be a great wrestler. Mm -hmm. So the reality is we lift weights to be better wrestlers. We don't wrestle to be better weightlifters. Got it. So, so when we look at the picture, what we do should be designed and specified to achieve the goals that you have. And if being a great wrestler is your goal, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do single reps of 700 on the squat. Right. It does mean that you have to have significant strength and endurance because muscular strength and muscular endurance are very, very important. And cardiovascular endurance is very important. And anaerobic endurance is very important in wrestling. Right. So designing the program to meet the specificity of the actual sport becomes incredibly important, incredibly important. And so do you like like kettlebells in that situation? Cause you're getting the cardio and the strength. What, what's an exercise or two that you have all of your wrestlers doing? So if someone's not doing it now, they can get their shit together and start doing it. <laughs> so, I mean, I'll tell you, for one, I like my wrestlers to clean. Okay. Uh, I like Olympic weightlifting for wrestlers. If you want to be explosive, do explosive things. We already talked about Wolf's Law, right? Yep. You do everything you do is slow, you're going to get slower. If everything you do is fast and explosive, you're going to get faster. So there's a component that I usually write in phases with wrestling. You know, we'll do a little bit of hypertrophication, 
to increase the cross-sectional area of muscle, higher repetition, anaerobic fa uh, phases with, with weight to, to exhaust. Then we go from that into a strength phase where we get down in the, in the lower repetitions, uh, you know, between your eights down to your, your threes in that area, and we develop strength. We start adding load. Then after that, I like to go into a power transfer and do everything fast for five or six weeks. Then I go into a power endurance phase. Everything fast, explosive with endurance. Letting my body build the number of sarcomeres in parallel, which sarcomeres are the smallest contractile unit of the muscle, okay? I'm trying to accommodate as many of them in parallel as possible in hypertrophy, because hypertrophy means increased cross-sectional area. So I'm trying to increase the cross-sectional area of the muscle so I can lay down more of those filaments in parallel. Then in the strength phase, I'm trying to recruit more of them per contraction. <laughs> and now I got more strength. Then I'm going to say, now I'm going to recruit the ones that I taught to fire that weren't firing before and the ones that I laid down and I'm going to teach them to fire faster for wrestling. Then I'm going to convert the ones that are firing faster to endurance. So now they're firing fast and they have tremendous endurance. And that's where, that's where it comes down to uh, being able to elicit the science in the right phasing to get the end result for wrestling. And, you know, I, I love cleans. I love explosive exercises. We probably do in our wrestling phase 400 different exercises, I would guess. What are, I'm just curious. What are a couple others besides cleans that, that come to the top of mind for uh, you? We do, we do all kinds of stuff. We do banded resistive exercises for shots. Uh, we do mobilization exercises for just finishes. So like our guys – uh, in between our exercises, normally we'll do a, a lifting type exercise, depending upon what phase we're in. Let's take uh, the last phase, right? Power endurance. We might have a lifting, lifting exercise followed by an explosive anaerobic exercise, followed by a cardiovascular exercise, and then converted back to a mobilization and small muscle group exercise. Got it. That one's kind of unique. In the strength phase, a little different. We'll do a, a, a loaded exercise followed by mobilization and small muscle group activations and then core and then back into another exercise. So uh, wrestling, there are so many different exercises that we do, but um, I like lunges. I like single leg rear foot elevated squats. I like uh, dumbbell lunges where it's a little different, uh, you know, than the standard dumbbell lunge, you know, we're, we're, we're vertical with our shin. Yep. We're coming straight down. We're coming straight up. We do a shot lunge where I actually get them in, a, in, in the position of contact on a leg, and then they, they start stagnant, and they have to blow out of that shot with the dumbbell and come through, maintaining a rigid spine, because what happens oftentimes is when that dumbbell pulls, we fold. What also happens when we shoot, and guy plants your face in the mat and spins behind you, and you got a problem. Mm -hmm. So the reality is if I can lock that in, keep the integrity of my spine, keep my glute activated, drive through with my hips, and pick you up, you're on your back versus me on my face. And I, I, I prefer the other guy <laughs> and me on my face. So we do a lot of different variations of exercise and accommodation, but very specific to the needs of the sport of wrestling, not not things that would atypically be done for football or others. See, that's what I'm talking about. You're like that example of the lunge where you start at a, at a, at a shot position, you come up. Like You don't see many people doing that. Um, and now I, I have to ask you this just because – I'm starting to hear a little bit more of this, and it, it kind of irks me. Is there any truth to the fact that you're not supposed to stretch after working out? Okay, so this is I, – I, Send this me straight on about. this, will you? This is, yeah, this is what I love about my field, okay? So we find circumstances that are correct, and we blanket them 
for all circumstances. But that's not how the human anatomy works. It doesn't make any sense. Inherently, the rule was if I warmed up and I stretched and then I did an explosive exercise right after stretching, I would produce less explosive force, which is correct. And why that is, is I'm stretching the cross bridges between actinomycin. Therefore, there's not as many contact. Well, every time you stretch, you don't lose neurological function. So that's a great answer for the right circumstance of stretching right before an activity and then going. But the reality is eventually those fibers return and they're a little more elastic. Otherwise, we'd be walking around the, the gym and, and in the wrestling room with parts of our body that just didn't work after we stretched. <laughs> so so in, in reality, the, the, they are correct that active stretching is better, doing movements that engage your fibers. If you really want to correct something in your body, you want to create elasticity on one side and activation on the other in that same range. Because a lot of times when we're impeded elastically, it's because we have a deficit on the other side neurologically that isn't allowing, think of a, think of a, this, this pen as a tower. If I tighten a cable here and there's a cable here, it doesn't matter what I do in this range, I can't get there anyway. Right. Right? So I've got to loosen this cable and then tighten this cable to get it back to neutral. So if I want, I've got to kind of increase range in one side and activate on the other side to get it back. So the way we stretch becomes important. We still do some stretching once we're warm because I want to create elasticity in the tissue. And then we do activations and functional mobilizations with that. But the idea that you stretch and your fibers somehow inherently never work again is, is completely ridiculous. Uh, so stretching is still a major part of what we do in composite with activations and functional movements that we do to allow for the joint to be functionally active through its full range of motion and in turn sustain that position by tightening this cable, right? Instead of just having to go back as soon as I stretch. So Got looking it. at that, stretching is not the devil. Uh, we're not, you know, it's not, and I've heard like, well, a cheetah doesn't stretch when it hunts. A, yeah, okay, well, I'm not a cheetah. Yeah. I don't run 70 mile an hour. I, I also don't run on four legs and weight bear a dissipation of twice the capacity of what I run on with two legs. And a cheetah's legs are definitely designed specifically different than mine, the way they engage the hip. So that's a pretty dumb statement. Yeah. The reality is we need to do what we do as human beings to make us more effective. Increasing range of motion is extremely important. Injuries reduce, uh, power increases. Let's take a look. If I take a manhole cover and I give you a long bar and a short bar, which one do you want to pry open the cover? Yeah, long one, yeah. Why, greater, greater torque. So if I decrease range of motion, do I have less torque? Yes, simple as that, you know? Right. So, so inherently you are correct. That's a really dumb generalized statement that is correct in certain specificities, but not something I would avoid doing as stretching is concerned. But after like a wrestling practice, there's nothing wrong with getting a stretch is what you're saying. Uh, you, I, my guys stretch every time. I mean, they stretch, they do some active range of motions ugh. with the stretch and they're done. It's, and I think there's, I like that there's people challenging the status quo because especially in wrestling, the status quo permeates in a lot of times for the wrong reasons, I think. So I, I appreciate that. But this came up recently. I don't know if you're privy to this. You're probably so focused you didn't see it. But Kyle Dake and Jordan Burroughs had a little, uh, a little, a heated argument on a podcast recently. And Dake's 
telling JB, he's like, you probably still stretch after your workouts. And JB's like, what? He's like, and Dake's part of this. He has a guy who's like a functional fitness guy where kind of like an Edo Portal type character, right? Where they're doing all kinds of movement. And I think there's a lot to be said for that, but they're, they, they're anti-stretching. And so I'm like, all right, I, I could see how what there's what you're saying. There's a specific situation, but it's tough to blanket something like that because I, I, wrestling is a sport where you have to be flexible. So I don't know how you could get the, the like being able to do the splits. How do you do that if you don't stretch? I don't know. So I, I just I had to get your opinion on it, and this just came up in the past week here. Right, let's give a primary example. If you get a tight glute and decrease range of motion in your glute, and someone gets in deep on a single leg and turns your leg sideways, your your LCL is going. Mm-hmm. It's gone. Because if your hip doesn't rotate, something's got to give. And that's your lateral collateral ligament. And you're sitting out, and that happens pretty commonly in wrestling. And the majority of the time that I see it, it's because someone's got a tight glute and their leg wouldn't rotate, and they got legs sucked under, and boom, LCL's gone. So range of motion is imperative for wrestling, imperative. I mean, doing it my whole life and being around it. Yeah. You're not functionally flexible. You're in trouble. Right. So, But I, I do agree, a lot of the stuff he does, we do a ton of functional range of motions and activations. That's all built in in between our sets. But we still stretch. We don't we don't pick one area and say this is the only area. I guess that's what makes us unique. We do thousands and thousands of areas of training. Our systems have over six thousand different variations of exercises within our system. So we're doing all different comparatives, but they're all designed for the right time, the right situation, and with the right piece of information applied to them. Uh, to say that anything doesn't work in some circumstance would imply that somebody has all the answers to the human anatomy. And I would say that's only God. Yep. Fair enough. Okay. Well, Mr. Barwis, I know you, your time's precious. Last question for you. And I've gone back and forth on typically I ask people, how did wrestling change your life? But I think it's pretty clear just from talking to you that it's all about, it's really attitude. It's, it's the discipline. It's the work ethic. I want to end with something a little more practical for our listeners. So a lot of the folks listening have kids who are wrestling and they, they ask me sometimes, when should they be lifting? Should they be doing body weight? I'm a big proponent of body weight stuff until a certain age. Let's say you have a kid who's a stud sophomore, stud freshman, and he's going into a long summer like we are now. What, what's a what's a regimen? If you only had five minutes with that kid and you'd say, hey, I got five minutes with you. I know this isn't how I do my program. I would spend hours and hours with you. But if you got five minutes with a kid who lives in Montana, who's never going to get to your facility and you're going to instruct him on how to put together a summer program, just hit us with it. How many days a week are they going an hour? Are they going 20 minutes? Exercise. I'm just curious how you'd answer that if you had you know, a random kid. Three days a week we do uh, strength and conditioning training. In, in our strength training uh, on those days, we will do uh, our weightlifting component. Mm-hmm. Uh, we will do our balance and functional training in between. These are the stations that go in between the sets. We will do our core training uh, we will do our joint stabilization for small muscle groups, injury prevention, prehab type stuff. We will do our plyometrics, our explosive training, uh, and our functional uh, mobilization programs uh, and our functional flexibility programs. That will all be on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. On Tuesday, Thursday, it's all movement-based. So everything is very uh, explosive, sequenced. Uh, we do shots with bands. We do transfers. We do uh, footwork to try and accelerate our feet for agility and movement and reactability, uh, a lot of specified movements. But those days are about being purely athletic. Hmm. We only lift three days. The other two days are, are, are athletic movement, biomechanical uh, uh, type exercise that, that, that are applied to the, the sport of wrestling. It might be stance in motion and a med ball be thrown at you and the guy's yelling, you know, uh, 
you know, shot in between coming off. So you're taking an impact and you're following with the shot and then you're working your feet through some ranges, all of those types of things we do on our Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, I think the important thing for a young kid to understand would be don't spend all of your time on strength. Mm. Make sure that you're getting strong on those three days. And a strength program should really probably last you. If you, if you do hypertrophy first and you're in higher reps of 10 to 15 repetitions uh, and, you're, and you're burning yourself out pretty, pretty effectively, uh, you can then phase down, do that for about four weeks, phase down to the next six weeks. Then I would range myself from the eight repetitions down to about the threes to get my strength up. And then after that, I would take five weeks and go into a power transfer where I would just do explosive movements, explosive, 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 do one exercise to load and activate, then do explosive stuff right after it. Because by loading with that exercise, I turn on the sarcomeres because force and velocity are inverse in the human anatomy, right? As force goes up, velocity goes down. As velocity goes up, force goes down. I always say, which would you lift faster, 135 pounds or 500 pounds? Everybody always says 135. I say, why? They say, because it's lighter. It's actually wrong. Inherently, they both fall at 9.8 meters per second, right? They both gravitational pull. Uh, both of them are inanimate objects. They can't create movement. The only thing that changes the speed is you. Mm -hmm. So how you accommodate the weight changes the velocity. And muscle force has to develop. It can't take place instantaneously. So with that being said, the greater load requires greater sarcomere engagement. Therefore, it takes more time to cause that engagement, so I will move it slower. Mm. The less load requires less engagement, therefore I can fire faster. So force and velocity will always be inverse. So by turning on a muscle with a load and then firing it fast right after, I inherently activate cross bridges that weren't active and convert them to speed in my sport. Those are things that I would start focusing on to accommodate the neurological change necessary for the sport. And once those are rolling, I take three weeks right before the season and I convert that to an anaerobic endurance and just go, 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 go with my exercises till I'm shot. Because now I've got more of those sarcomeres in parallel, more of them working per unit of contraction, more of them working faster per unit of contraction, more of them working faster and longer per unit of contraction. That's wrestling. Man, I love it, Coach. Thank you so much for your time. If they want to look you up online, do you have any programs, like online programs right now, or, or where should they go if they want to learn more from you? Yeah, we do. We, we write personalized programs for people, but if you go to uh, our barwis.com uh, uh, website, we have you know Barwis Anywhere. We do programs. We do Olympic athletes, professional athletes, high school, everybody. You name it, we do it. Uh, you can do it remote? Yeah, yep, yep. And we can, even, we can even send videos right to their phone. We build them their programs on their phone, they click the video, it shows them the exercise, the program's done, and they just go about and do it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time, sir. I greatly appreciate it. Have a great day. My honor, brother. God bless. Be safe. And all great things must come to an end. If you want to hear more from the podcast, text WRESTLE to 555-888. That's WRESTLE to 555-888. You can also find us on Instagram, Wrestling Changed My Life, Twitter, Ryan underscore N underscore Warner, as well as our website, WrestlingChangedMyLife.com. Take care, y'all.